You're listening to the Early Stages by APX, Europe's leading early stage investor and accelerator program for digital startups. As a new founder, if I had to ask you what taking the leap means to you, what would you say? Would it be to take a chance on something? Maybe being brave? Maybe to go for it? Or what about quitting your day job? I'd say all of the above. Deciding to take that step and focus on your venture full-time requires immense bravery, a drive to make things happen, and admittedly, a little dash of risk-taking. While I'd love to say that all successful founders left the comfort of their day jobs and dove headfirst into their business, things aren't always that clean-cut. Not for everyone. A brilliant idea doesn't guarantee customers, and realistically, financing doesn't arrive overnight, even for the lucky ones. And chances are, during this period, you may find yourself working full-time, managing a social life, kids, partners, schooling, or while hustling to develop your company in the evening, or sacrificing weekends to get out there and speak with customers and potential investors. In this episode of The Early Stages, we're going to explore the realities of this period of the founding journey, when you're faced with the task of committing to an idea and turning it into a business. Through speaking to two founders and an APX advisor, we'll be providing you with the tools and the knowledge to make this tough decision a little easier and hopefully prove to you that you really do have what it takes. Let's take it back to basics for a second. The first thing you're going to need to do is figure out if this idea that you have is actually an idea worth pursuing. Do you truly believe in it? Are you passionate about it? Can you think of nothing else? These may seem like obvious questions, but to Maya Markovitz, an investment manager with APX, this mindset is extremely important during this time. In the end of the day, especially in the early stages, the most important thing is not the business idea itself, nor the business model, nor the vertical, nor the industry, nor the technology. It's the founding team, right? And if you are not in the mindset of really wanting this and being extremely hungry and to a certain degree also doubt-free, right? I mean, if there's one thing you cannot have is self-doubt or at least self-criticism is something else, but deep mm-hmm. self-doubt won't work. So I think... Taking the leap needs to feel not like something which is really tough, but something you feel like you have to do in order to really get to where you want to get. Let's hear that again. It can't feel tough. It needs to feel like something you have to do. So to clarify, the step may be a tough one, but the need to make it happen really should trump any moment of fear or concern. Podcast über Flow und Produktivität von Flowlab. Wir sprechen mit ambitionierten Jonas Vossler, the co-founder of FlowLab, was a busy man. He was working as a basketball coach and for his university, where his research focused on this idea of flow states. This flow state is a very specific concept in research that describes a state of peak performance, where you're so absorbed in an activity, you forget everything else around you. And I experienced this in so many areas of life, first of all, in sports and music and then I did some research for four years at the Institute of Ludology it's applied game science researching how these states come about in games not just computer games but just how games are structured and specifically 
what the individual person can bring to the table to experience more of those flow states in terms of their mental, emotional, cognitive uh, makeup. Okay, granted, Jonas may have had a head start on the whole forgetting everything else mindset, but the important thing here is, is that he was so consumed by the burning desire to do more that he was driven to start braving a course of action. So I always had this like entrepreneurial mindset in the back of my mind. So I'm here at the university, which is an entirely different environment in a part-time job and thinking, you know, I want a bigger challenge. I want to make a bigger impact with these ideas. How can I use entrepreneurial tools to get there? Because I knew I wanted to do it. I was basically, I don't know if this is a word, but I was feeling this entrepreneurial fever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I was obsessed by the idea. I know I needed to do it, but I had to create the circumstances. This entrepreneurial fever also manifested itself in Dimitri Gartner, the co-founder of Freeman. Freeman is a company that connects advertisers, publishers, and indoor screen providers on a data-driven platform. Dimitri was gaining valuable insight and knowledge while working at Deutsche Bank, but ultimately, he wanted to go it alone. Hast du schon von Freeman gehört? Freeman bietet einen Marktplatz für Advertiser und Screen Provider. If you have ever read a book that's a book or I don't know, watch a movie series or something uh, that really cap captured you, where you like you can't stop thinking about it. It's like you're you're riding or you're driving to your work place and you're thinking the whole whole time about it. Yeah, you can't actually you can't even sleep. The first thought in your mind when you wake up is how can I progress here? How can I make it better? How can I go that way? In that moment, when you actually capture yourself that you're thinking much more about the idea than about your actual work, mm. I think this is a good moment actually to take all that motivation and bring it to the next level. So we're excited. Yes. We're feeling consumed by our idea. That's really good. I do just want to pop in for a second to remind you that there is a difference between passion and a plan. Like Dimitri said, if you're spending all your time thinking about the idea, it's probably time to develop some concrete steps to move your venture forward. For the sake of this journey, holding onto a brilliant concept but not telling anyone about it is the same as having no idea at all. In order to set the plan in motion, you need to start reaching out. So one of the first steps was actually to start telling everybody about what I'm going to do. So not just my professor, but really everybody. Getting feedback on the idea because it's a different topic. But if you're so crazy about an idea, I could some nights I could barely sleep because I had idea after idea and I just wanted to write it down. But then sometimes the next day it feels really stupid. But if it sticks... <laughs> Mm -hmm. And the next step is going to ask other people and tell them about it. And then if you can survive the feedback and the criticism and you're still burning, then you might be onto something that you really want to do. This is what it felt like. According to Maya, this sharing and feedback is a fundamental first step in these early stages. And she adds that these people you've reached out to could and should serve as your mentors and come from networks that you can turn to for help. And I think it's not only a question of financial wealth, With that regard, it's also to a certain degree a question of support, which is non-monetary. So you need to be aware that there are not only many unknowns that you know of, but many unknown unknowns. They might be just unknown unknowns for you, right? They might be known unknowns for someone else. 
because they have had more experience or went through the same and they have learned from their experience. So if you get an advisor per se, I would recommend you to not pay them. But if you have a mentor that is willing to help you on the journey because they believe in you and what you want to achieve, it can really help you to eliminate many mistakes that you shouldn't be doing at the beginning. That doesn't necessarily need to be a co-founder at that stage, but at least someone you can, who's willing to challenge you also on your venture idea or that you're involved in some sort of an ecosystem where you can touch upon different opinions and influences and that maybe help you to further your idea because the idea is never done, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's the crucial time where you are in ideation stage and you really, really develop your business model, the problem that you're trying to solve. Dimitri and his team are a great example of this, as they made the most of those around them. Dimitri built networks of mentors and potential partners while working in Deutsche Bank, as he was surrounded by like-minded people who could prove themselves valuable to Freeman. And as their network continued to grow, so did the word about their company. Actually, we had a WhatsApp group where we added all the mentors and, and all the advisors time by time and were like dropping in questions sometimes, uh, giving updates, like not to formal newsletters, but just literally as you would do with your friends, right? And this helped us actually to explore much faster, get good advices, get introductions. This is maybe something I can recommend to all of you. If, if this is, if, if you use WhatsApp or you use other groups, It helped a lot to get quick feedback. That's amazing. How did you convince a number of who are, I'm sure, very busy mentors to be part of a WhatsApp group? I don't even want to be part of all the WhatsApp groups I'm a part of. Well, keep it professionally. It should definitely not be a, a spammy group, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's maybe one message in two weeks, but it's powerful and everybody reads that. And you must build a very trustful environment for this. Mm -hmm. And I think every founder is responsible to build the trust not only in the WhatsApp group, also in the founding team, also with, with your employees and also with your investors. So in, in my time, I was participating in a couple of hackathon where more corporate hackathons with some ideas and there were a lot of mentors, pitch training at that time. I met a lot of people, creatives, developers, also a couple of VCs and potential angels. So in the moment when I left, Deutsche Bank, I had a couple of, let's say, best wishes in angels or like my, my favorite VCs I would love to reach out. Mm. And it's always great if you already have a little network that can introduce you, that can help you maybe to meet somebody. And yeah, literally our very first angel was one of my former bosses at the company where I was working for. So These people know how you perform. These people know how consistent you, you deliver things. And this helps in the beginning always. Both Jonas and Dimitri had the advantage of coming from backgrounds that fed directly into the venture that they were looking to launch. This will probably be the case for some of you, but not all of you. So where do we go looking for these networks? Where do we go looking for these potential mentors or advisors who can give us the boost that we need? Maya suggests looking into meetups and accelerator programs. They have their meetup uh, pages, then there are those ecosystem ecosystem players, which are different in each ecosystem. I think here in Berlin, what you should check out is the APX event calendar uh, with, on meetup. We 
do have every Tuesday a format called Pitch Tuesday, where our startups that are currently in the program are pitching for training to a broad audience. And the idea is to get feedback from the audience in a safe space environment and not just the harsh investor startup environment. And there are many other accelerators that have similar formats. So depending on where you are located, check out local accelerators or your local university. So many universities have startup clubs um, that have panel discussions. If you're still a student, go and attend them. If you're working, see whether external people can also go there. Then check out local ecosystem endorsers that are financed by the cities or the government. Every city and every government has a certain budget to try to spur a startup lifestyle. Or even podcasts. Last but not least, if you cannot attend these events for networking purposes, when it comes to content, check out podcasts. I mean, it's incredible how much you can learn. And I'm not saying this just because <laughs> I'm in a podcast, but it's really incredible of how much information you can absorb about your journey. Quick sidebar. If you find yourself working in a field or on a product while with a previous employer or at your university, Maya suggests that you pay really close attention to the terms of your contract and any potential issues you might have with intellectual property. If I have to give advice to the people out there, please do check your employment contracts. That's something that is really, really relevant because there's two options what you could do, right? I mean, you can start to build small technological assets if you are coding yourself or start to work on that business while you're still employed, for sure. The issue is that many working contracts nowadays, especially if you work in a fast-paced environment, do have IP clauses in your employment contracts. So whatever you're creating in terms of intellectual property while you're being employed might belong to your former employer. And they might have a claim against this, which they will maybe make use of once your company is mm -hmm. worth a billion. So just be aware of the fact that you need to have a solid case where you can prove that you only started to work on this or create that intellectual property whilst not being involved with that company or employed. I mean, that's the unsexy and boring red tape kind of part um, of the advice, but that's something I, I, I really, really advise you to do is to check your employment contracts at the, at the beginning. What we have seen is that some of our founders started to build product their product on the side, but they have openly communicated it with their current employers. That is not applicable to every job. I think if you're working at a startup yourself, your boss is most likely to understand if you tell them like, hey, listen, in a year down the road, I would like to found. You need to know whether that's something you can communicate while not being afraid of getting fired, especially if you're anyway in a terminated contract then um, you can think of maybe using the end of that terminated contract as a date to leave and making them aware that you're working on something else and then amend your employment contract in a way that it does exclude every intellectual property that you're working on for your new venture. Now, getting back to acquiring feedback. During the process, it can start to feel like you're spending more time talking to people about your product than actually producing it. And admittedly, yeah, it can be tough. But building your network is an essential part of the venture capital game. It's not so much about building this product. It's about building and selling a vision and selling the company. This is one part. Like we, Here's a lot of coaching in terms of how do I communicate more clearly what, what, what we're doing. 
And at the beginning, it felt like, okay, this really distracts us from actually doing what we want to do. Because it was always, we were networking, telling people what we do, but never really doing it. That was difficult, but understanding that this is like, if you want to raise money and then do the next round and then do the next round, what are the steps in the process and what do you need to achieve? These early stages are where your idea and your product are more malleable than they'll ever be. Your professional network is integral in giving you an idea of whether or not you're on the right track, but your potential customers are where the real data lies. A user-centric approach is incredibly important, so invest time and energy in reaching out to as many people as possible and figure out if what you have to offer is actually something that people need. And if not, would you be willing to pivot? Maya says that market validation is essential if you want funding in the future. If I were to start tomorrow on my venture, I would make sure that I would try to work very extremely lean, try to iterate very fast and really get to the core of the problem that I'm solving. Having being very user-centric and really understanding how can I iterate on my product very quickly and thus get first a certain sense of product market validation that there actually is a need for what you're trying to propose here. And I don't mean talk to five people. I talk I mean, talk to 300 people. That's one of the larger problems that we're seeing with our founders. They didn't get their hands dirty when it comes to validating whether this is really a problem they're solving that is applicable to many people and whether their solution that they're proposing is really solving the pain point. So they come here and they pivot. It is also important to acknowledge which opinions matter and which matter a little less. Every market will have a different perspective on your product, and not everyone you speak to will be in your ideal client market. So keep that in mind when you're looking for feedback. There are maybe also two different perspectives on that. On the one hand, there are always people who will tell you this will not work out. And you must listen to the arguments of the people. But of course, you should have your own opinion if this works out or not. On the other hand, uh, you should not be stubborn, right? So if, if you literally see uh, you have followed that path for a couple of months, right? And you literally see this is not working out as thought. Try it a bit different. Think about the arguments that were maybe given to you. This is maybe one of the misconceptions at that point. Uh, sometimes you must invest long term into people first believing in what you do and also um, building trust with your product, building, building tr trust with your, yeah, your service that you provide. The more complex your service is, let's say you want to build some data center with a specific, I don't know, AI solution that will automize processes. Don't underestimate the people first want to literally trust that this works out what you promise because they invest a lot of time into mm. implementing that in the corporation. So it's not only about sending out some presentations and, and, and already believe I got the customer. I guess it's time for me to address the elephant in the room. Money. It's all fair and well having a killer idea, but developing a product, building a team, marketing yourself, we know that these don't come free. So how are founders managing their financial responsibilities, especially in the period before you've even started approaching accelerators and investors? You need to be aware that there are many things you cannot influence as a young founder, which is the speed in which you will be able to be successful, 
raise funds or be able to pay yourself salaries through your new ventures. What you would want to do is you would want to raise the same amount that you believe that you need just on a high evaluation because you will give up less equity. And the less equity you give up at the beginning, the more control you have over that company. In reality, it looks a little bit more different. So what would typically happen is that you would raise more money because certain funds need to have a certain percentage in your cap table in order for them uh, for their fund economics to make sense. But at least then you have more firepower, right? You're at the better stage where you say, okay, I validated this. I have built up my pipeline. I've understood what my, my, my customer wants, right? Or I've understood what the user wants. Okay. Now I can take up a larger chunk of money and really make it work rather than stuffing it just down product development. It's easier said than done. <laughs> Because again, it costs money to develop your product, right? And even if that means you have to work two days a week on the side through consulting services that you're giving to someone else. And I mean, what was really impressive, I once met a female founder and she used to be an investment banker and she always wanted to do this. And she put some money aside, and but, but she just didn't want to go out there yet. I mean, typical female founder thing, right? I mean... A little bit of an imposter syndrome, not being ready. And she realized she's coming to the end of her own funds and she cannot pay herself any much of a salary. So she said, I mean, listen, I went to Oxford. I did investment banking in London. I'm going to go clean apartments now for two days a week. I don't care. Like, I don't care about the stigma. It's two days a week so I can live my dream the remainder of the three days. And I was so in awe. I was so in awe how she literally said, I don't care. This is my utmost goal that I want to achieve. And whatever will get me there, I will go there. I'm not telling you all to go out and clean apartments unless you really love doing that. But all I'm saying is that sometimes it's better to take it a little bit slower, work on your product, get your validation that you want to get before you go out and try to fundraise. Dimitri did what many founders do and put whatever money he had into Freeman. But he did also utilize crowdfunding platforms. Sometimes your team can find creative ways to acquire the cash needed to take you to the next level. So uh, I think we had the right balance for the beginning. Of course, uh, we all put our spendings on, on the initial phase. So I think it's, it's not bad if you, are, of course, can at least calculate for the first couple of months. Definitely not years, but a couple of months when you start and quit the jobs. So I put a lot of my investments first into the company, software development, first marketing investments. And then we came up with one idea how we can access a bit more funds for developing the software. So we took a little hack, which was starting a Kickstarter campaign, offering our software combined with a little hardware product. And this was pretty successful. So uh, we raised more than 100,000 euros. And with that, basically, we could develop the, the platform, the software, and bring it to the level where it is supposed to be a pretty good first version for the market launch. So with that funds, of course, we had also to deliver the product that we were link linking in that Kickstarter campaign. But it helped us, of course, to boost and bootstrap at least the first one year. And then after that, basically, the VC story began. Maya says that many founders can benefit from public funding schemes as well. Also, another thing that you should consider or streamline before quitting your day jobs is to do some 
desktop research on potential grants that you could apply for. It's money that you typically get for free, but you can only get it if you achieve certain milestones or are in line with certain requirements. So it's very cumbersome to research them. So I would actually say that this is the type of work that you could do while you're still uh, working full time and understand how you should structure your next few months that you might become eligible for one of these grants. There are huge grants being paid by the German government, by the city of Berlin, actually, uh, where you, you just literally get 50K if you present a business case plus some technology. It's not 50K just per se. You need to prove that you have 50K in the account. And then they would basically mirror this. And for every euro you spend, you get 50 cents back. So this is just one example. Hamburg has something similar, I think with up to 150,000 euro. There are grants by the European Union if you're already if you've gotten first traction where you can get up to 250,000 euro just in free money. Don't get me wrong, the bureaucracy, the red tape is cumbersome, time-consuming. So I would really suggest that you try to figure this out a little bit earlier, take the time to research that and have a look. Whether you're bootstrapping, crowdfunding, or applying for grants, this part of the journey is a challenging one and something that can admittedly feel like you're taking away from the quality time you could be spending perfecting your product. But, like Jonas says, it's a sacrifice you're going to need to make. You have to go out before it's too late. Now you have to start selling, you have to start talking to investors, even though what you might actually want to be doing is creating more content, making the product it itself a little bit better. And then it's really tough. It really hurts to, when we're launching the product in January of 2019, and then we have to go out and raise money, then for more than half a year, nothing happens content-wise, or even a whole year. So it doesn't change, but this is a sacrifice. You have to let your, like, leave your baby alone for some time, or it's, it's hard to do it all at the same time mm. because the business aspect of it costs just so much time. Before the financial planning, I think I pulled an all-nighter for an entire week. So because just to finish the financial planning, because it's such a tedious, stupid work. Uh, yeah, that helped me, actually. I know it's not the, the tools at the very beginning, but yeah, financial planning is something that if you want to raise money, you have to do. Everybody thinks it's stupid. Everybody knows that it's just uh, not the reality, but still, like as a means of communicating your plans and your knowledge. Yeah, it hurts, of course, a little bit that you have to take care of all of these things, but it's pretty easy once you realize that you cannot continue to do what you do if you're not taking care of the business side. So that was kind of a realization early on for me as well. I came in as like passionate founder, just wanted to <laughs> contribute something. But this romantic view of things, you know, it's, it's actually not the focus. These early stages are where you're going to be facing some of your first challenges. Whether it's supporting yourself, finding your first customers, or developing a roadmap, there will be ups and downs. But one thing is for certain, using this time effectively will set you and your baby up for long-term success. Dimitri puts it quite nicely, as he describes how both his business and his first child grew together. Uh, I figured out one very, very funny parallel thing between the kids and the startup. 
So literally, the, my, my daughter was one year old when the company was founded. And I see, I, I try always to compare the progress between her and, and the company. So <laughs> she's now talking as she's like super interested and curious and skills are scaling. And I, I see like, it's similar to the product. And in the beginning, uh, you, you need to explain a lot. You need like to try an error. It's, it's falling down very often and needs to stand up again. And if you, if you look at your product in the beginning, like a kid learning to walk, learning to speak, uh, literally, I would say as a kid, it takes a year at least mm. until you come to the point where it's starting to scaling. It becomes a pretty cool, entertaining thing in your life. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Maya, Jonas and Dimitri for taking the time to speak with us. On the next episode of The Early Stages, we'll hear from Max Villat, Sebastian Ryder and Tilman Kemper about financing and growing a startup. Don't underestimate how much time it really takes to fundraise because as soon as you have identified good investment opportunities, you need to approach them or even better get a warm intro or get some kind of relationship going over time. This episode of The Early Stages was produced by Bear Radio for APX and hosted by me, Julia Schubert.